0: Yama, welcome friends to Understanding EMDR Therapy, an Australian podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Lynch, EMDR consultant, clinical counsellor and psychotherapist. And I'd like to begin our podcast as always by paying my respects to all First Nations peoples, our elders, past, present and emerging. And I'm really excited today to be yarning with Liam Spicer. And it was so great, Liam, to meet you recently at the Emdra conference. So welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Tracy. It's a pleasure to be on the show. And it was definitely great to meet in person after seeing each other on Zoom for many years. So yeah, yeah, it was a yeah. great opportunity for connection, wasn't it?
0: It was mate. Yeah, it was really it was it was a great few days. I think everyone left feeling very full to the top with quite a bit to digest.
1: Certainly. I would very much agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. So
0: So, Liam, thank you so much for joining us. So, it'd be great if you could start by introducing yourself, telling us where you're coming to us from today and, yeah, what you would like our listeners to begin to know about you today.
1: So, I'm a psychologist based in Launceston, Tasmania. Um, I work in a group private practice and I'm also an EMDR consultant um, and training facilitator. So I really enjoy working and, and helping out at the trainings in particular, that sort of new generation of people coming through and being trained in EMDR. Um I work as a bit of a balance, um, sort of couple of days clinical work, um, some days sort of working in the consultation and training space, and also doing my PhD right now in the area of prolonged grief, which is an area um, I'm quite interested. So yeah, a bit of a varied mix, mix which I like. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's sort of my time um, in addition to, to being a father and everything else.
0: Yep. You're a busy, busy fella.
1: That's right.
0: Well, I'm really excited to continue hearing about your learnings with EMDR in the grief space. Um, But if it's okay with you, um, can you just start by telling us a little bit about your um, involvement in that training space, because I think there'll be a lot of listeners that are interested in that extra learning that can take place after weekend one and weekend two. So would you mm-hmm. mind just sort of kicking that ball into the scrum and telling us about that, um, yeah, what you offer, what what you and your colleague, is it?
1: Yes, my colleague Dee, yeah. So myself Dee, and yeah. Dee, um, Dee was the, the original person that introduced me to EMDR. Um, Number of years ago, and especially throughout COVID, we noticed that I guess it was quite difficult for a lot of clinicians here. Obviously, there wasn't access to face to face training. Uh, a lot of the trainings that were being offered online were being offered in um, various different time zones, and we really saw a bit of a gap there in terms of being able to sort of upskill people and provide. Um, sort of training opportunities that work in the more advanced space, but also really in that space of sort of integrating EMDR with other approaches. So whether that's sort of somatic approaches, various ego state approaches, polyvagal based approaches. So mm-hmm. we've sort of offered a number of trainings over the years on different topics, uh, hosting people on the lines of Jamie Marich, Dr. Ariel Schwartz, um, mm-hmm. had Annabelle McGoldrick, Carolyn Van Deest and mark brain um, which was a really great webinar Um, and we've got some really great stuff installed for the rest of the year as well Um, so yeah it's been a a really um, yeah nice experience connecting with many other EMDR therapists around Australia and being able to provide some of these opportunities that People would um, previously in the past be staying up to two a.m. in the morning to complete, or having yeah. to watch recordings afterwards. Which, as we know, a lot of us sort of purchase these trainings, and they may not get the time to ever get to it. So, yeah, it's been sort of one of the focuses for for us in this space.
0: Yeah, that's great. I've attended a few, and I've really enjoyed them. Um, and you're definitely getting some very sort of sought after. Um, EMDR folk along. So we're going to pop in the show notes some links so people can find out about that training. But um, would I be correct in saying that there's already a library there that people can go back and purchase trainings and then there's live ones coming up?
1: Certainly, yeah. So there's some previous webinars that we've hosted where you can go and purchase now and and sort of watch on-demand webinars. Um, There's also a number of various ones coming up soon. So we have Dr. Ariel Schwartz uh, presenting on working with complex PTSD dissociation, fragmentation, um, and somatic symptoms. That's coming up in a a two-part series in June. Mm -hmm. Um, After that, we also have uh, Ruth Culver. She's doing a very sort of experiential therapist-focused webinar where we're going to learn about the Survive Thrive Spiral, which is a IFS and polyvagal integrated tool and technique. Um, So that's going to be quite a good training. Um, Moving forward after that, um, it's a real privilege and honour to be hosting both Professor Paul Miller and Professor Derek Farrell, who recently presented at the EMDR conference, and that's going to be on um, working with complex PTSD, but also psychosis and schizophrenia, um, a space that really hasn't been out there in terms of training um, in the last couple of years. So that's going to be a really great opportunity. And then towards the end of the year, I'm hosting one myself on sort of enhancing attunements and the therapeutic relationship within the sort of EMDR and trauma focused space. So really more fine-tuned skills and ways Mm. of trying to enhance Um, That connection with the clients, being aware of our own activation within the therapy space and some of those other important principles sort of integrating um, sort of interpersonal neurobiology, polyvagal theory and and stuff along those lines. So I'm excited to, to be presenting that as well.
0: There's some there's some great um, some great gear there, um, so really encourage people to jump on and check out um, the EMDR Integrative website and keep an eye out for those amazing trainings, amazing resources that are coming up. So, um, on behalf of our community, thank you that you um, are holding space to get sort of experts in our field in and teach us about about many different things. So thanks Hmm. for that, Liam. Yeah.
1: Our pleasure. It's certainly an area we're quite passionate
0: about. Yeah, yeah. So Liam, um, it was really great to be um, part of the mob of people that were there live and online at the conference listening to your presentation on grief. And I'd like to start by understanding some more about why you chose to specialize and understand more about EMDR with grief. So what 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 sort of led you um to dig deeper into that space?
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's a really great question, Tracy. I think it's been a real combination for me of of, I guess, personal experiences, but also I guess sort of um a sort of combination of mix of sort of philosophical and, and even sort of spiritual experiences, um, sort of studying overseas in India in the past and I guess seeing a lot of grief there in various forms. Um, also throughout very sort of um significant times in my life, um, sort of losing um important people to myself and and going through mm-hmm. a, a lot of loss with my partner in our journey towards having um, a baby together so I think a a Mm. bit of a combination there of things Mm. that I've observed and been a part of my own personal experiences and it's certainly a, a real big space within EMDR that hasn't probably receive quite as much an attention as a lot of other areas. There's definitely yeah. some research out there now supporting the use of EMDR with grief and with more those prolonged grief responses. But mm-hmm. in comparison to a lot of other areas within the EMDR space, it's certainly probably one of the most under-researched, and, and that sort of sparked a bit of passion in that domain as well, really trying to, mm. um, I guess, get the message out there that obviously EMDR can be a really valuable and beneficial treatment for people whose grief has become stuck or frozen or blocked in some way.
0: Yeah, okay. So thank you, Liam, for helping us to understand some more about why the pool, I guess. I think for many of us um, what we Lean into in our own lives can also be something that we we learn more about more about the parts of ourselves that show up alongside of challenging emotions and mm-hmm. can and often be a gift to our clients and and our community. And mm, so certainly. you you mentioned just now and also in your presentation about prolonged grief. So I'm wondering if it would be okay if you could start by speaking to the difference between what you would potentially consider as normal, hard grief, painful, normal, hard grief versus prolonged, complicated, sort of stuck grief. How would you define what those two different things are?
1: Hmm. so it's a really great point to make as well because understandably when we lose a significant other or or even when it's non-death loss and there's grief around a massive change in our life or an animal, understandably there's going to be a complex range of emotions and certain behaviors. I think losing someone or there being such a profound change in our life is is one of the most challenging things we can, Experience Mm. is a part of being a human. And I think it's really important not to sort of pathologize that response. Understandably, when we go through the experience of grief, often it does take a lot of time to adjust or accommodate that loss into our life. And I think it's really important to point out that it's not necessarily that the grief gets smaller, it's that over time Mm. our life starts to grow around the grief in certain ways. So I think it's really important, firstly, for people to understand that we don't want to be i guess going in and and utilizing emdr 2 days after someone's lost their dog or lost a family member like it's it's quite a valid experience for them to be going through so much pain but through a lot of research now, especially through leading experts within the field that have been discussing this and researching this for quite a number of years, there has been a, a sort of different grief response that's been identified. And in the past, this has sort of been referred to in many different ways. So mm-hmm. um, complicated grief, um, also sort of persistent complex grief, um, but more mm-hmm. recently as prolonged grief. and. Mm-hmm. What this form of grief is, is often a more debilitating form, more significant impact on functioning, but it's often that the symptoms of grief really persist for quite a long time period. So at least over 12 months, often in a lot of situations, quite a lot longer. So I think it's really important to differentiate that. And there's various ways of doing that, of course, but there is a, a very distinct difference between someone's understandable response to a loss in that sort of acute grief phase, and then someone's sort of more prolonged grief reaction, which for some particular reason may have been sort of blocked in some form or or Mm -hmm. due to the circumstances or a lot of other factors, it's become a little bit more complex. And they're the ones that the research demonstrates can actually benefit from intervention.
0: Okay. Okay. Thank you for explaining that so well. And I'm mindful that in my culture and the culture in which I work, um, sorry business um, mm. is um, also takes on in some communities other layers of complexity around mm. being able to share those immediate needs and even go on to share when grief doesn't pass or move on or like you said that that square of life expand around the mm. grief. So there's it's there's there's mo- there's quite a lot of complexities um mm. that come in this space. I'm wondering mm. so it it seems like what we're talking about potentially is two different expressions of grief or two different manifestations if you like. So in the first case as you mentioned Grief comes when there is loss of, and that can be loss of many different things. Mm. In your your experience, in those earlier days, if clients were coming to see EMDR therapists in the earlier days, um, how do you feel as EMDR therapists, we can best support people potentially before that grief may become stuck, if it's going to get stuck? Like, what can we do in those early days?
1: Mm, That's a really great question there, Tracey. And and going back to your point as well, just around sort of cultural and and religious and spiritual factors, it's a really excellent point to make there because that is something that you do need to be aware of. and, And certainly as well, there's research and a lot of literature out there now to support the unique role of cultural and spiritual and religious factors in the experience of grief, but but also in terms of um, prolonged grief as well. So yeah, it's definitely Mm. an excellent point you've made there. I think firstly, one of the the important things as EMDR therapists and clinicians that we need to be aware of are some of the risk factors or factors that are associated with people developing a more prolonged grief response. Mm. If we're aware of that, then If one of our clients is experiencing grief in some form, we can take that into consideration to know whether or not they could be someone that is or or may be more likely to develop this prolonged grief response in some form. And that can sort of help with our intervention and treatment planning. So there has been quite a consistent um, sort of level of support for various factors now throughout the research and literature that are associated with developing a more prolonged grief response one of the big ones is, is certainly sort of attachment and attachment style especially yep. early attachment but also the attachment with the the person that is lost in some way um, other factors as well are prior trauma mm-hmm. which obviously we know is a really big one and, and is obviously a big trans diagnostic risk factor for a lot of mental health challenges Also as well, though, which is quite interesting, is that various um, sort of maladaptive schemas have been identified to be related to developing a more prolonged grief response. And and this is one of the areas that we're currently investigating further um, through our research. And what's quite interesting in this regard is that sometimes the experience of loss for someone, there's obviously the inherent big emotions and, and challenges associated with that. But sometimes as well, the reason as to why they may develop a prolonged grief reaction is because the loss within itself can be a bit of an activating event, Mm -hmm. and that can actually then bring up other past patterns or experiences, so whether that's maybe a sense of abandonment or Mm -hmm. or maybe it's now these fears that the world is a bad place and people are going to get hurt, or it could be this sense that uh, because of the loss, I need to look after other people and and not look after my own needs. And then that really prolongs the grief response. So there's a lot of different factors. Mm-hmm. There's some of the ones that I identified throughout the research, but there's also a lot of other ones as well around the nature of the loss, how the person died, social mm-hmm. support, satisfaction. Um, there's yeah. a, a a sort of nice diagram called the mediators of mourning, which sort of unpacks Mm -hmm. and and discusses some of these a bit more in detail by Warden, who works a lot in this space. But I think, firstly, as clinicians being aware of these factors is really important. And inherently, whether it's an area that we're sort of aiming to sort of specialise or focus on, inevitably some of our clients at different points in time are going to experience grief in some form. So I think it's really important to be aware of some of those factors. Moving forward from that, I think sort of education is, is quite a big thing, and I think sometimes we we may sort of downplay the important role of education, and this is where you can sort of build in that AIP understanding as mm-hmm. well. If, for example, there's been a very traumatic loss for that person, and it's sort of on their mind quite a lot, and there's a bit of overlap with PTSD symptoms also, I think education about the sort of response to loss and and the challenges associated with that, but also education about sort of things that the person can do in terms of self-care, getting social support, some of these sort of theories and models of grief around life going around it and expecting it to get smaller per se. I think they're Mm -hmm. two really important things as MDR therapists that we should firstly be doing in those early phases, just so we can sort of have open up that space for clients, really validate their experience, provide them with education and knowledge and some resources, and Mm -hmm. often that can really assist, especially in those very acute phases of grief.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So let me just check that what I'm hearing you say is that in those early days, two of the things that we can do as EMDR therapists is number one be aware of the factors that may go on to cause this prolonged stuckness of that mm-hmm. of of the loss and sadness so be really looking at both internal resources that they hold and also stories, like old stories, maladaptive stories, schemas that might Mm. contribute to this grief really getting stuck. Mm. Um, So being aware of what those factors are and also that piece on education. So really making things explicit, like really helping people to understand the nature of grief, What is what the research says can be useful, what sort of current supports they have in their life potentially what resources they already have on board that can be woken up to support the grieving parts.
1: Mm, Certainly. I think social support is such a really significant factor in this situation. And even looking at things from from a a sort of polyvagal perspective is that when we lose someone significant in our life, it it sort of inherently is ascending innate danger signals and people can often Mm. really go into that shutdown response. So, Any healthy co-regulation, social connection, bolstering up supports in various ways and engaging in other meaningful things in that person's life can really be great as a sort of preventative measure and assisting persons through those um, sort of acute and initial phases of grief
0: yeah okay. And as you said before, looking through that lens of the AIP model, really considering about what has already happened in this person's life that mm. is going to show up again at mm. um at a at a crisis point.
1: Mm, definitely. And I think early on, if we can do things that are aligning with a lot of the existing grief framework practices, like things around, Continuing the bond with the person in some way, whether that's through having a a connection or or a conversation on a regular basis, visiting the gravesite, visiting other special places, being able Mm -hmm. to feel like we still have a a relationship with them in some form. They can all be really healthy, adaptive ways that can assist in those initial phases of grief
0: also. Yeah, okay. Thank you. And so when we then think about clients who are experiencing prolonged grief, would you at the in, in your findings, are you using the standard protocol um to be able to help them to gain um distance from some of those symptoms or are there other adaptations that you're finding are useful uh, with with those with that pro- prolonged grief presentation
1: yeah, certainly the the standard protocol. I think at the end of the day, everything comes back to that in some form, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> as
0: yeah. much
1: as there's a thousand protocols out there. But, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, certainly the, the standard protocol. But what's really important as well is considering the, the three prongs of EMDR because mm-hmm. we really want to be perhaps working through some of the past experiences that have made the, the grieving process blocked in some way, whether that's the sort of circumstances of the death or maybe there was a sort of fight with a loved one and there's a sense of sort of guilt or shame Mm -hmm. or regret around that, which is blocking things in some way. But also as well, sometimes sort of even earlier experiences in that person's life, maybe of grief or or maybe other related experiences where there's maybe similar negative cognition or, or similar emotions, sometimes processing that stuff can be quite important as well in order to get adaptive shifts in the present moment. So sometimes as well, sort of doing the bridge back or or floating back using some of those more attachment-focused, attachment-informed protocols can be quite of benefit. But it is really important to be considering the sort of present prong in terms of sort of triggers, maybe it's going to this place or someone mentioning this or um, someone bringing up their name in a certain situation, considering those once you've processed some of the past experiences, but also whether the sort of anticipatory anxiety that you might need to process Mm. as well. Or sometimes there can be sort of catastrophic fears that may be held towards the future in various ways, and that's where sometimes a sort of flashball can come in. So I think... Often it's the very much standard protocol, but I think there really does need to be that consideration of of all three prongs, as with the, the majority of clients, really. Um yep. but yeah, yep. in terms of using a protocol. Yeah, very much standard protocol overall.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like we're really being curious with the client about what is the material that is stuck, mm. that is, that is getting in the way of life being able to begin to somewhat expand around the loss
1: mm, certainly yeah,
0: whether that be the image of the person's last breath or um or- be- or belief systems around grief if I let the client if I let that person go that means I don't love them anymore mm, or mm. um or um like you said before, those more early attachments if it feels like life can't go on without that particular person. So mm. it seems like we're being curious about what is stuck, what is getting in the way of mm. that adaptive information being able to move in and, and soften some of the sharp edges
1: Mm, certainly, yeah. And this is one of the areas that, that my colleague, Larissa Meisner, who I presented with at uh, the MDRA conference, covered really well in terms yeah. of sometimes there can be a lot of particular beliefs around not being able to cope, not being able to handle it, not being able to survive. But equally as well, there can often be a lot of stuff around it's my fault or I should yeah. have done this or I could have done that. So there can often be a sort of complex range of various emotions around firstly the person's ability to cope and being able to move yep. forward from the yep. loss, but also as well there can be a sense of sort of either shame or guilt or regret in certain ways, and they can often be really big emotions for the person that have really mm. sort of impacted on that natural grieving process in some form. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, thank you. So, in all of your research, um, and I imagine many, many hours of you reflecting about the the human condition of grief and prolonged grief, what what has been your biggest learnings or aha moments? Has there been anything that has stood out for you as wow, this is this is a new way to think about that, or? I wouldn't have thought that. What's been your biggest learnings here in this space?
1: it's hmm. a really great point. Um, really good question. Hmm. I think definitely one of the big reflections, uh, I guess, at a personal level, and obviously there's always been some understanding of this, but certainly over time has come more and more and supporting so many different clients is that, Grief is such a a universal experience and and obviously it has profound impacts in so many different ways. And I think Mm. inherently as hard and challenging as the loss of someone can be, certainly in in my experience and a lot of clients have observed as well, is that sometimes the, the shifts that happen in terms of someone's identity, someone's meaning that they make from the loss, and sometimes some of the changes that they then make to their life afterwards and and some of the positive things they end up doing from, I guess, yeah. the the suffering they've gone through and then the sort of healing space and then really that sort of post-traumatic growth in a sense. It's been a really, mm. I guess, beautiful thing to observe and I think it's definitely something that connects us all as, as humans, the, the sort of profound loss that we can all resonate with when we have lost someone and I guess that's Mm. sort of the the suffering that we all experience is is something that brings us all together in some way so I think that's been Mm. a really big thing that's just become more and more cemented over time that it's sort of in so many different ways in different areas of life regardless of who we are that's a inevitable sort of part of our human experience um but also at a personal level or more of a professional level I think One of the things I've especially noticed from sort of working and getting more involved in this space is definitely the the real importance of being integrative in nature when working in this area. I think obviously as MDR therapists that that can often form the sort of majority of our treatment and the majority of how we work with clients but I think as well really including some of those other core and basic elements around sort of emphasizing and, and supporting the client for more social connections some of the behavioral mm-hmm. stuff and also as well within this space other particular interventions around like therapeutic letter writing and, and sort of yeah. empty chair gestalt work all of that stuff can be incredibly powerful in terms of the person sort of making meaning of the loss and, and really being yeah. able to keep a connection with that person so certainly yeah. there are some of the the reflections at both a, a sort of personal but also professional level working in this area
0: mm-hmm. thank you uh, with the with those two um methods that you just mentioned then the letter writing mm. and the the chair work mm. what what is it do you think is the magic? What do you think is the magic ingredient if or, or ingredients? So mm. in that therapeutic, if you wouldn't mind just briefly, because there might be some listeners that aren't familiar with the therapeutic letter writing, and then we'll touch mm. on the chair work. Um, I, I'm just curiously Liam, what your thoughts are around what is it that you believe make those two techniques? As healing as they are,
1: mm, yeah, certainly. It's a really great question. I, I think first, there's a bit of a, a sort of explanation of what they are. Yeah. Firstly, so, so therapeutic letter writing—that's a pretty common technique. A lot of people, you can use it in various different forms. But in the context of grief, you can use therapeutic letter writing to have a sort of dialogue or maybe express unmet needs or emotions or experiences towards the deceased person in some way. And often I sort of incorporate this after particular EMDR processing sessions that have sort of been quite profound in some way where there's really been this big adaptive shift or there's been this really core message that's come out of it. We often would set as a bit of a task to sort of write something to that person in line with some of the beliefs or sort of even write a letter to your future self around mm. how you can cope or you can manage or you can be able to move forward with meaning and purpose in your life. So therapeutic writing can be used in that sort of way. And, and with the empty chair, that's often a way for the person to be able to imagine the deceased person in a chair and be able to express whatever they need yeah. to that person. Or you can also use it creatively in a way where the person can then take on the role of the deceased person and they can actually be doing things in a conversational way, that sort of yeah. unfinished business and whatnot. So. In terms of the the sort of um it's a good point to think about in terms of like what what's that the the sort yeah, of what's core the element of it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yep. I think that the fact that it is so experiential and, and obviously mm-hmm. as an MDR therapists, we know the importance of that the sort of connecting with the bodily sensations. It's not just a a cognitive process. Um, Even Mm. with letter writing, often really sort of encourage the person to be connecting with what they're noticing and what they're feeling in their body as they're doing that exercise. So I think the fact that it's experiential Mm. is certainly a, a very important aspect. But I think as well it also sort of taps into, I guess, from a theoretical perspective, that continuing bonds, where we sort of still feel like we have a a connection with that person in some way. So it almost has Mm -hmm. that sort of spiritual element, whether a person's religious or not, and, and regardless of what their views are towards those sort of things. I think... Often for people that can be quite profound in terms of feeling like the person's still there in some way, whether it's in a spiritual sense of of them feeling around them, whether it's a spiritual sense of of their religious views or even in the sense of they're there with me through the memories I have of them and the impact they've made on my life and the person that I am. So there's mm. many different ways that that sort of continued connection can be interpreted. But I think that's a really core ingredient as to why these are important sort of intervention and things to use because it really allows us to still feel like we've got that connection in some way, which I think is quite powerful.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it re- when I have done that sort of work with clients, like you were saying before, that experiential somatic engagement because grief is somatic. We feel it in our bones. Mm. We feel it in Mm. our body. And to be able to then potentially have a conversation or um, get some resolution with what it is we've lost um, and when we can feel that back on that same level, it feels like we're resonating on. A, a, it, we're resonating with the right parts of ourselves, rather than just engaging the reporter part to do mm, the work. Um, right. it, ju- it does feel like a deeper, more spiritual work.
1: Mm, definitely, yeah, I much agree. And I think uh, on that sort of notion of parts, there as well, y- you can really bring that into this work. Where, for example, if there's maybe a a very young childhood part who's feeling deeply impacted or abandoned as a result of the loss, well, then you can actually uh, allow that part to express how they feel and and connect with their emotions as a way to, I guess, facilitate some of the processing of the grief. So I think you can definitely bring that that stuff in really well as well, which is a, a really good point to To make their Tracy. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, Liam. Well, it's a it's a beautiful work you're doing in this space. I think it's um, for us as therapists, and to be informed by people like you that are doing more research in this space. Being able to travel this journey with people is an honour and mm. and such a need because often, like you said at the start it can wake up other schemas of being alone because mm. sometimes in our cultural context, it's not something that we talk about two weeks after the funeral, you know. Um, so mm. to be able to be therapists that are willing to sit in this space and hold space for the work to be done is a real honour and um, mm-hmm. to be led by um, your new understandings I think is something that is a really a useful thing for our community as a whole.
1: Mm, no, thank you, Tracy. Yeah. And, yeah, certainly I would agree it is a, a, an honour and privilege and I certainly really enjoy working with people in this space. There certainly is something very special about it and I think as mm. well it's a, a real important area for Yeah, people to be involved in and i think as you sort of mentioned there as well around us not speaking about the loss two weeks later and that i think there really needs to be a a sort of cultural and and societal shift around that as well because i think that is one of the factors that does impact on people developing this more prolonged grief response if people have Mm. the opportunities to connect and share and talk about things in those earlier phases and and people sort of not having this sort of stigma around, okay, well, the loss was a month ago, now you've got to get on with life. I, yeah. I think we, there needs to be a real cultural and, and sort of societal shift around that narrative, which I think is a big part of, of things yep. moving forward as well. So, yeah, it's definitely yep. uh, a good point you've made there.
0: Yeah. So will you be bringing more learnings to us about how we can support our clients with grief in the future? Is that something that, like, you're planning on doing?
1: Yeah, certainly something in the works alongside everything else. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, hoping to to sort of especially as well. Um, when we sort of head a little bit more further into um, the the research and whatnot, um, yeah, there'll hopefully be the opportunities to present that in different form, which I think a lot of people will find quite interesting, um, yeah. some of the, the sort of findings from all of that. But yeah, certainly at some points, I'll sort of focus a bit more on some other trainings and resources in this space, because as I mentioned, yep. I think for every clinician, it, it, it's sort of a benefit to have some level of understanding of grief mm. and these prolonged grief responses. Um, so yeah, certainly something that I'll um yeah inform people of when the the opportunity comes up great so watch
0: this space
1: well Liam thank
0: you so much for um chatting with me today um time flies when you're having fun so um it's been lovely yarning with you um Traditionally, there's a question at the end of each podcast um, about the message stick, and that is a way for you to connect us with someone else that you think would be um, a great person to yarn with on our podcast. So is there someone you had in mind that you wanted to pass the message stick over to?
1: Yeah, certainly. I was going to be a bit greedy if that's okay and, and pass on to two, one sort of down yes. my way and one at the top of Australia, if that's okay or, or towards near the top. Um, I think, firstly, um, Dee Cooper, my partner in Mm. EMDR Integrative and the person that introduced me to EMDR, I think she'd be a great host on the show. Uh, Dee has quite a sort of integrative approach, very attachment and somatic focus and works with a lot of um, sort of uh, ex-service personnel and policemen and and frontline workers, so has a very um, sort of experienced skill set in that domain, which I think would be really interesting to have on the show. And the other person, which I got to connect with face-to-face at the conference and um, was one of the many individuals, there's a certain group of us that despite learning for eight, nine hours in the day, we sat around afterwards and chatted (laughs) to 11pm every night. So that was certainly a fun experience. But um, Monique Mitchelson as well, who presented at the conference um, with Anna Clark, she's doing a lot of work in this particular space with neurodiversity and MDR. Her and Anna have recently launched their their company, Divergent Futures, and have got a of great yeah. um training opportunities coming up in that space so yeah I had a lot of interesting discussions with monique over the conference and I yep. um, I think she'd be a great great person to have on the show as well and, and definitely has a very um yeah interesting skill set of various different therapies and experiences so um that would be another guest so sort of one connection from um my sort of origination in EMDR and one new connection which I think would be nice to pass the the message stick onto those two
0: That'd be great. Thank you. So Dee Cooper and Monique Mitchell, um, I'm coming at you. It might be a few weeks because we've got a bit of a, a backlog of message sticks to catch up on. But thank you for those two recommendations. And thank you again, Liam, for being with us today and sharing your important work.
1: My pleasure, Tracy. Thanks for having me on the show. And thank you for doing such great work in this space. It's been very nice to listen to all the podcasts so far. Like I mentioned to you at the conference, I was sort of listening to some on the way over. And it's nice to have these podcasts and hear from other people around Australia working in different ways. So thank you, Tracy.
0: Thank you, Liam. So thank you for being with us today on Understanding EMDR. Feel free to reach out to Liam via the contacts in the show notes or myself, Tracy Lynch, via tracylynch.com.au. Sending you warmth, kindness and understanding. Bye for now.